Pastor Rick, over the course of the last two times that we've met, wrapped up chapter one, and I want to draw our attention to the last verse of that chapter because it leads us into our text tonight. Wisdom is speaking here, and wisdom calls out, he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. Heeding wisdom leads to security, specifically security and safety from the dread of evil. Tonight, we are going to continue to look at the pursuit of wisdom. I wonder if any of you are familiar with uh, Forrest Fenn's treasure. Forrest Fenn is a multimillionaire art dealer who has accumulated his fair share of valuables over the course of his life. Um, several years ago, he was diagnosed with, with cancer and decided to leave behind him a legacy in the form of a treasure hunt. And so what Forrest Fenn did was he, he found a, a, a treasure box that was about a foot tall, a foot wide, and a foot deep, and he filled it with golden nuggets and precious gems, and he hid it somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. So somewhere in the Rocky Mountains is a treasure chest that weighs about 40 pounds containing valuables that are worth somewhere around $5 million. He then proceeded to release a treasure map complete with a poem, a 24-line poem filled with clues containing the location of the treasure that he has hidden. It's intriguing, isn't it? No doubt some of you are tempted right now to pull out your phone and look up the clues to that treasure, thinking that you may be able to crack the code. Others perhaps are considering quitting their jobs in pursuit of a treasure of $5 million. It's estimated that 300 to 400,000 people have searched for the treasure. Books have been written on it. There's blogs that center around the location, the, the possible whereabouts of where this may be. Several people have died in pursuit of this treasure. Forrest Fenn has progressively released more clues on his own blog. He's eliminated entire states as to where the location of the treasure may be. It's not in Idaho, it's not in Utah. It's fascinating, it has its own little cult following of individuals pursuing life change if they can identify the location of Forrest Fenn's treasure. To this day, the treasure has not been found. No one actually even knows if it's real, but many continue to search. In our text tonight, Solomon is going to refer to wisdom as a treasure of infinite value. Infinite meaning that the, rep, rep, the, the repercussions of whether or not someone has wisdom will be felt throughout eternity. And so it's fitting to ask as we enter into this text tonight, how aggressively am I pursuing the treasure of wisdom? It's likely that you've probably never considered quitting your day job to pursue it. But that's okay, you don't need to. 
What's going to be seen in chapter 2 of the book of Proverbs is that the key to finding wisdom, the clues that we must follow to finding wisdom, what we must do to find wisdom is look for it. Now, lest you hear that and say, duh, that's how you find every treasure. The point of Proverbs chapter two is actually this. If you seek it, you will find it. If you look for wisdom, if you search for it, as scripture instructs us to search for wisdom, you're going to find it. You will not seek this treasure and leave empty handed. If you seek it, you will find it. Wisdom is different than any other treasure and that there is a guarantee to those who seek it in accordance with the information that we're given in scripture that it will be found. Wisdom has infinitely more value than any treasure here on earth and those who seek it will find it. Tonight, we are going to look at the entire chapter of Proverbs chapter two. You can follow along in your Bibles. I wanna read through this whole thing It's gonna take a few minutes, so hang on. Proverbs chapter two. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. And he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil. From the man who speaks perverse things. From those who leave the paths of uprightness. To walk in the ways of darkness. Who delight in doing evil. And rejoice in the perversity of evil whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land. The treacherous will be uprooted from it. We have a lot to cover. And so as we make our way through this text tonight, I wanna present to you two principles, two principles that motivate the aggressive pursuit of wisdom. Two principles that motivate the aggressive pursuit of wisdom. The first principle that motivates the aggressive pursuit of wisdom is this. Wisdom will be found by those who seek it aggressively. Wisdom will be found by those who seek it aggressively. 
As we begin this text, Solomon begins to lay down an if-then statement. In other words, if, if the things that he lays down for us are true, then there is a conclusion that can be drawn. If you do the things that Solomon says, then it will lead to what Solomon promises. The if-then statement outlines a path to which wisdom can be attained. That path is a path of aggressively seeking and pursuing wisdom. So there is a question that we must ask tonight. Who are the ones who aggressively seek wisdom? Who are the ones who are aggressively pursuing wisdom? If there is a promise of finding it, I want to know what would qualify me as an aggressive wisdom pursuer? Well, Solomon lays that out for us. In the first four verses, we see that there are, there are four items that mark those who are aggressively pursuing wisdom. Look at verse one. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. What we see in verse one is that one, one item that marks those who aggressively pursue wisdom is that they highly value it. They highly value wisdom. To aggressively pursue wisdom starts with highly valuing wisdom. He says in verse one, if you will receive my words and if you will treasure my commandments. You don't just hear them, you receive them. You take them to heart and, and in your heart, you value them. You value them as a treasure as valuable, as infinitely valuable. Just as those who are giving their lives in pursuit of earthly treasure, you pursue wisdom knowing that it is infinitely valuable and you treasure it in your heart. Solomon says, son, you must receive my words. You must treasure my words. You must want my words. And ultimately, if he does that and is obedient to the other things that Solomon is going to call him to, Solomon says, you will have wisdom if you value it and if you are willing to receive it and take it to heart, it will lead to you attaining wisdom. Verse two, make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding what does it look like to aggressively pursue wisdom? Not only highly valuing wisdom, but secondly, to, to listen for it. To have your ear attentive to it. What's described in verse two is both an attentive ear and an inclined heart. That your heart is leaning, that it's, that it's desiring. Your ear is continually listening for wisdom. Give me wisdom to highly value it, to attentively and intently listen for it. Solomon continues in verse three, if you cry for discernment, if you lift your voice for understanding, a third marker is not only that you highly value it, not only that you intently listen for it, but also that you urgently call for it. He says that, that his son is to call out for wisdom. Cry for discernment, lift your voice, literally shout and yell, I, I need wisdom, give me wisdom. Which is fascinating because in chapter one, verses 20 and 21, we saw that you aren't the only one calling in this scenario. Wisdom is calling for you. 
Look, look back at chapter 1, verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the streets. She lifts her voice in the square. Wisdom is calling for you, and Solomon calls his son here to yell, to shout back for wisdom. Imagine two people that are searching for each other. But they're not searching for each other in silence. They're both calling back to one another. And the ease with which you can find someone in that scenario is heightened. Because you're both listening and you're both calling for each other. Wisdom is calling for you. Wisdom wants you to hear her voice. And Solomon says, son, you must call for wisdom. You must, you must shout for wisdom. Lift your voice for it. Seek it. Ask for it. Those who aggressively pursue wisdom highly value it. They intently listen for it. They urgently call for it. Look at verse four. If you seek her as silver, and if you search for her as for hidden treasures, the last marker of those who aggressively pursue wisdom really wraps all of this up. They desperately search for it. They desperately search for it. He uses the terminology here of silver, of treasure, of gold, of, of, of valuables. Son, he says, you must, chase after, you must chase after wisdom as if you're chasing after a hidden treasure contained with valuables that will change your life. Seek it like your heart wants to seek after gold. Desperately search for wisdom. Desperately, aggressively, passionately pursue wisdom and understanding and discernment and discretion. And back to our illustration of Forrest Fenn's treasure. People are literally dying to find it. Solomon asked his son, Are you searching for wisdom? like your heart desires to search for gold? Are you availing yourself to opportunities for wisdom? These characteristics and these opening verses define the man or the woman who, what we've said all along, is wise enough to know that they aren't wise enough. You know the person who calls out for wisdom? It's the person who knows they desperately need it. The person who closely listens for it and the person who intently searches for it is the person who knows I don't have all the wisdom I need. Those who don't think they need it don't search for it aggressively. And herein, we find what we've said thus far in the book of Proverbs and what will continue to be repeated throughout the book. And that is that the pursuit of wisdom demands humility. It demands that I don't know all that I need to know. I am not wise enough. I'm certainly not as wise as I should be. So Solomon sets these before his son. Notice that they start with, with the word if. If you do this. If I do this, what will happen? Look at verse five. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord. And then you will discover the knowledge of God. 
following what Solomon instructs his son to do here will lead to discerning the fear of the Lord. That is, that is understanding, comprehending what the fear of the Lord is and being able to do it. The fear of the Lord will not be distant to you. It will not be foreign to you. It will not be unknown to you. You will know the fear of the Lord and you will be able to fear the Lord. He says, you will discover the knowledge of God. Said another way, you, son, if you do these things, you will know God. You will discover the very knowledge of the creator. Now, if you've been paying attention so far in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God are not peripheral topics around wisdom. The fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God are wisdom. And what Solomon says here is, son, if you will do these things, if you will listen for it and call for it and pursue it and value it, you will have wisdom. You will have it if you seek it in accordance with what scripture calls us to do. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10, the knowledge of the Holy One, that is wisdom. How can we be so sure that if we do these things, we will find wisdom? Verse six. For the Lord gives wisdom. And from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You know, we can know if we do these things that we will have wisdom because God is the one who gives wisdom. We are called to be obedient and to those who are obedient in these categories, God says, I will give you wisdom. The giving of wisdom is tied to the very faithfulness of God. Seek it aggressively and you will find it because God himself will not withhold it to, from you. Isn't that assuring? That it is God's faithfulness that, it, that is the assurance that wisdom will come? Verse seven, he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is the source. It comes from him. He gives it freely. And those who have humbled themselves and feared him, those who are upright and willing to receive wisdom from God, will have it. This is a principle for living for us. If we seek wisdom aggressively in accordance with what scripture calls us to do, he will give it to us. So how do we do that? How do I go about aggressively seeking wisdom? If I value it and if I'm calling for it, like is it that? Do I just scream out, wisdom, come to me. I think when we search scripture, I, I, I see three primary ways that we are called to aggressively seek wisdom. The first is that we are to ask God for wisdom. We are to ask God for wisdom. I think that's implied right here in, in verse six. The Lord gives wisdom. It comes from him. So ask the giver. Ask the one who is the giver of all wisdom. James chapter one, verse five says, does any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask God and he will give it to you. 
The aggressive pursuit of wisdom leads to the asking of God for wisdom. A second way that I see scripture instructing us to aggressively pursue wisdom is that we know God more through his word. We know God more through his word. Also in verse six, it's from his mouth, God's mouth, that come understanding and knowledge. His words reveal wisdom. It's from his mouth. And so in the pursuit of wisdom, where do we go? We go to his word. We, we go to our Bibles. In Proverbs chapter nine, verse 10, we've already been there once and we'll be there many times throughout the rest of this study that the knowledge of the Holy One is wisdom. Wisdom is wrapped up in knowing God. And we know God more through his word. So so how do we aggressively pursue wisdom? We ask God for it. Also, we go to his word and we know the Holy One more through his word. We go to the word of God so that we can know the God of the word. There's There's a third way that I believe scripture teaches us to aggressively pursue wisdom and that is to seek wise counsel. To listen to wise counsel. Jump back to chapter two, verse one. My son, receive my words. Treasure my commandments. Solomon is looking to his son and he's saying, son, receive my counsel. I'm giving you instruction. Listen to it. Take it. Treasure it. A way to aggressively pursue wisdom is to seek and to listen to wise counsel. Seek the counsel of of godly men and women that you trust. Seek the counsel of of, of pastors and elders. Seek the counsel of of, of your spouse. Seek wise counsel. Solomon has laid down a fundamental if-then statement. If you aggressively pursue wisdom in accordance with what I've told you, it will not be withheld from you. God will give it to you freely. Solomon then proceeds for the rest of this chapter to tell Solomon why he should seek wisdom so aggressively. Through the remainder of chapter two, we see why we must seek wisdom so aggressively. And this seems actually gonna continue into chapter three. This brings us to the second principle that motivates the aggressive pursuit of wisdom. The second principle that motivates the aggressive pursuit of wisdom is that wisdom will guard those who find it. Wisdom will guard those who find it. We find ourselves now in verse seven. And what we're gonna begin to see immediately is that Solomon uses guarding and protecting type terminology. He's already told his son how to get to wisdom. And then he says, son, if you you have it, here's what it's going to do for you. Here is the value of having wisdom in your life. Look at the terminology he uses. God, he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Guarding the paths of justice. He preserves the way of the godly one. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. 
Understanding will watch over you. So Solomon has laid out for his son that wisdom comes from God and that God will be to the one who has wisdom, a shield, a protector. That's the terminology he uses. Verse seven, he says shield. Verse eight, he says guard and preserve. Verse 11, guard again and watch over you. He says God himself will protect you because he is the protector. He guards us. He is a shield. We are in his hands, he says. He continues to repeat those statements of what God does in his role as a protector until verse nine. And he repeats that if you've done these things, you're going to attain wisdom. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course. You, he says to his son, you will know how to conduct yourself. You will know how to live. God will be protecting you because you are one who has wisdom and you will know how you should live. You will be able to discern the right course of action in life. That leads verse 10, to wisdom being in your heart and knowledge being pleasant, pleasant to your soul. Knowledge becomes sweet. It becomes desirable. It becomes attractive to us. It becomes pleasant to our souls. What knowledge is that? It's the knowledge of how we are to conduct ourselves in life. That knowledge, that awareness of how we should live is something that we aggressively desire and something that becomes pleasant to us. But I want you to note when he gets to verse 11 that there's a little bit of a change of terminology. He's been repeating since verse seven that God is the one who guards and that God is the one who protects and that God is the one who watches over us. But look at what changes in verse 11. Discretion will then guard you. Understanding will watch over you. Once wisdom becomes pleasant to your soul, there's a change in terminology there. Initially, he said, God is watching over you. Then he says, discernment is watching over you. Why the change? Is it really that God stops guarding us and discernment starts? No. No, it's that when that knowledge of how we should conduct ourselves, of how to live our lives in light of the fear of the Lord, when that is pleasant to us, God gives us discernment. And that discernment is a primary way that God guards us. When we have the discernment of God in us, we are protected because the one who has that discernment walks into scenarios of life and he is able to see what lies before him and know what he should pursue and what he should run away from. The woman or the man who has discernment looks at life and knows how they should act. That discernment protects you. That discernment guards you. It guards you from temptation. That is a primary way that God protects you. 
I mean, I think it'd be safe to say that we can break down how God guards and protects us in, in the two primary ways. One is that he sovereignly orchestrates scenarios so that we are protected, and we may never even know that that's happening. But another way that God protects us is that he gives us his discernment by which we can avoid temptation, by which we can recognize sin from a distance and run the other way. When that God-given discretion and discernment is in our heart, we are protected from evil in a way that the fool never is. The fool doesn't know to run. The fool doesn't have the discernment and the discretion to recognize sin. But when this knowledge becomes pleasant to our soul, like verse 10 says, that discretion and that knowledge watches over us and guards us. That is the discretion and the knowledge of God protecting us from the threat of sin. What becomes clear as Solomon continues is that when Solomon is talking about protecting and guarding and keeping us safe, in his mind is the context of, of the sin and temptation of this world. He says, I will protect you. And what he's saying is, I will protect you from temptation. I will protect you from yourself. I will guard you from sin because I will give you discernment and discretion. That becomes directly clear in verse 12. That discretion and that understanding will deliver you from the way of evil. Solomon is going to wrap up chapter two by looking at two primary areas of life that the discernment and discretion from God delivers us from. It's fascinating. He's gonna to refer to wisdom as a deliverer. It rescues you. And before we even jump in, I want us to continue that awareness that we just talked about. When we say wisdom rescues us, it's not some magical event that happens without us being aware of it. The rescuing of wisdom is the discernment of God applied to the scenarios of life in our lives. That's how wisdom delivers and rescues us. So wisdom, he says in verse 12, it will deliver you from the way of evil. The first category that he's gonna talk about is a category of sinful friendships, sinful influences, those in your life who may push and pull and draw you towards evil. The power of the influence of friends who are marked by sinfulness becomes Solomon's topic here. And this is a topic with which we're already familiar in this book and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Remember, Solomon is talking to his son who is young and very impressionable, and he knows the power of sinful influences over his life. And so he warns him, son, if you don't have discernment, you're gonna be influenced by the wrong people. He highlights the wrong people as being marked by four characteristics. Look at this, this is, this is so helpful. Those negative and sinful influence in your life are marked first in verse 12 from the man who speaks perverse things. Sinful influences in our life are marked, according to Solomon, as those who speak evil. They speak evil. We're told that they, they speak, verse 12, perverse things. 
That, that word perverse in our context often has a sexual connotation, but it's a much broader term here. That word perverse just means to, to twist, to take something that is good and to twist it. He says that sinful influences in your life are going to be marked by how they talk. Said another way, they're going to reveal their heart with the abundance of their mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. These sinful influences will reveal their identity in how they talk. They, they twist what is good. And so they, they are liars. They, they pervert the truth. They will be gossips and twisting and perverting someone's reputation. They are marked by evil and destructive speech. He continues to describe sinful and negative influences. Look at verse 13. It will deliver you from those who leave the paths of righteousness to walk in the ways of darkness. Another characteristic of these sinful influences is that they live hypocritically. Not only do they speak evil, but Solomon says, son, these men and women will live hypocritically. Look at how he lays it out in verse 13. They will leave the path of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. It's fascinating. We see both sides, but two walkways here. He says, these people, they'll know the way of uprightness. They'll walk on the way of uprightness. But what he points out to his son is that they won't stay on the path of uprightness. They will leave that path and walk in the path of wickedness. Walk upon the path of darkness, he says. In other words, it's not to say that they, they never live in uprightness, but that they never stay in uprightness, that they're hypocritical, that they leave one path often to go to the other. Solomon says, son, this will mark sinful influences in, their li in your life. Do they speak evil? Do they live hypocritically? Verse 14, do they delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil? The characteristic of sinful influences is that their joy is sin. Their joy and their satisfaction and their happiness is wrapped up in what is wicked. It's, it's so easy to be bound in our friendships with someone by, by gossip. Or to be bound to someone through lust. Through, through any enjoyment of sin rather than Christ. Solomon says to his son, if their pleasure is found in sin, stay far away from their path. They speak evil, they live hypocritically, their joy is sin. The fourth characteristic of sinful influences is in verse 15, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. This is a broad categorization. They live sinfully. They live sinfully. Their path isn't straight. It's not consistent. It's not righteous. The path they lead is a crooked path. They're devious. They're, 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 they're twisting. They're, they're perverted. They're twisting what is good and making it evil. Solomon looks to his son and he says, discernment and discretion will rescue you. It will deliver you from these influences. Again, that does not mean that Solomon will never encounter this temptation, that Rehoboam will never encounter this temptation, or that you will never encounter this temptation. 
Solomon is assuring his son that he will encounter the temptation of sinful influences and he calls him to embrace wisdom and discernment so that he knows how to respond in that moment. So often our our approach to temptation is that we aren't looking out. Our guard isn't up. That is wisdom. That is discernment. To know that I'm going to be drawn to sin when there are influences in my life that are pulling me that way. So I'm aware. And I'm looking around knowing that I'm not wise enough. Solomon says, watch out. You need discernment and wisdom to be delivered from sinful friendships. But he continues in verse 16 to talk about a next topic for his son and that is the topic of immoral pleasures. Immoral pleasures. Not only will it deliver you from sinful friendships, son wisdom will deliver you from immoral pleasures. He says, it will deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words. The strange woman is a designation for Solomon that's clarified later in the verse. It's an adulteress. It's a woman with whom Solomon's son would have been tempted to be intimately involved with. Now, remember in the midst of all this, he's gonna talk about the adulteress and she's gonna come up again and again and again in this book. But that's because Solomon is talking to his son. I think it'd be fair to say that if Solomon were were talking to his daughters right now, that he would be warning them to stay away from the adulterer. And so I think we can zoom out and say that Solomon is warning all of us against immoral pleasures and arming us with wisdom to resist immoral pleasures. Just like he marked the, the, evil, the evil friendships, the evil influences, he marks this strange woman, this adulteress, with four characteristics. Verse 16, she's flattering. She's flattering. The adulteress flatters with her words. She tells you what you want to hear. He says, he, he warns his son, she's going to make you feel good. She's going to flatter you with her words. But flattery has no substance. Flattery is just verbal manipulation. If someone is telling you great things about yourself in order to force you to sin, that's nothing more than, than seductive manipulation. There's a reason that Solomon starts here. Infidelity almost always begins with flattering words. So so have your guard up. That is wisdom. Solomon says, son, watch out because she will flatter you with her words. But he continues to characterize her. Not only is she flattering, she is, verse 17, unfaithful. She is unfaithful. Verse 17, that leaves, she leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. She leaves her her first love, her companion from her youth. This is terminology for, for her husband. She leaves him. She's marked by unfaithfulness. It's almost as if Solomon is saying to his son here, Solomon, why, 
Why go to the woman who is marked with unfaithfulness? If she's unfaithful, why would she remain faithful with you? It's foolish to expect otherwise. She flatters with her words. She is unfaithful. Verse 18, a third characteristic, she's forgetful. She's forgetful. Excuse me, not verse 18. Second half of verse 17. If she leaves the companion of her youth, that is her unfaithfulness. She forgets the covenant of her God, that is her forgetfulness. There's multiple interpretations to what this covenant refers to, possibly her covenant to her husband, possibly her, her, uh, her, her covenant to God as, a, as an Israelite. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. What matters is that she's marked by forgetting that covenant in the pursuit of sin. It leads to a fourth characteristic, and this one is the climax. She is deadly. She's deadly. She flatters with her words. She's unfaithful. She's forgetful. And lastly, she's deadly. The words are heavy, starting in verse 18. Her house sinks down to death, and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. Solomon's gonna repeat this point throughout the book. Son, this sin will kill you. Which is a significant statement. There's, there's various interpretations as, as to what it means when Solomon says this will kill you. Possibly Solomon has in mind the, the, the law that says if you commit adultery, you will be put to death. That is punishment for this sin. The adulterer and the adulteress are killed. So Solomon says, son, you pursue this, it will lead to your death. Perhaps he's talking about the nature of sexual bondage, that, that it's addictive, that it's powerful, and that it will hold on to you until death. It will pull you in, and apart from the grace of God, you will never recover. Perhaps it's a, a physical marker of of spiritual death that is associated with continuing in this sin. First Corinthians chapter six, we don't have time to turn there now, but it says, don't you know that, that adulterers will not enter the kingdom of heaven? The sexually immoral, that is not a mark of one who is a child of God. That's not to say that God doesn't have grace for forgiveness, but that if you're expecting that your lifestyle is that and that you can continue in sin, that that reveals that you're, you're not a believer. That's, that's not a sanctified way of thinking. Regardless of whatever this means, he looks to his son. Perhaps all three are found finding their reality here. Son, this sin will lead to your death. It's not to be taken lightly. And he's gonna continue reminding his son of that throughout the book of Proverbs. We will see it many times over as we continue to walk through this book. But if his son heeds wisdom, if his son desires discernment and discretion, he says, it will deliver you. It will deliver you from the adulteress. It will deliver you from immoral pleasures. Not that you will not face the temptation, but that when you do, you will know how to respond because you have the discernment of God within you. Well, Solomon concludes this text with three verses. Look at verses 20 through 22. He says, so, so then you will walk in the way of good men 
and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be uprooted from it. Solomon gives just as a very brief final motivation that the upright, those who live in wisdom, those are the ones who will dwell in the land. Now this, this is covenant terminology that's used here. This is a promise for the children of God. This is a promise to the Israelites that they would dwell in the land that he promised. That promise is ultimately realized for those whose faith in God was, was present in their life as manifested in their application of wisdom. Those who would ultimately inherit the land were those who were defined by sanctified living. The Jews who will dwell in the land are those who fear God and humble themselves and receive wisdom and discernment and ultimately proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and thus live in righteousness. But he says, if you are wicked, if you don't have the discernment of God, if you are not resisting temptation with the wisdom of God, then you are marked as no child of God and you will not inherit the promises of God. You will be cut off from the land, he says. The treacherous will be uprooted from it. There's a lot there. There's, there's a lot of room for, for conviction. I just, I just ask this question, are you do you find yourself not running from sin? Because I would suggest to you based on this passage that if, if that's you, then you lack wisdom from God. But that is exactly the news that someone lacking wisdom from God needs to hear. Because remember what wisdom is. Wisdom is the awareness that I'm not as wise as I should be. It's, it's being wise enough to know that you're not wise enough. If you're not running from sin, you need more wisdom from God, more discernment, more discretion to see temptation and to run. Are, do you find yourself running from sin? There's no room for pride. Because that, as we saw in this chapter, is only the wisdom that God gives to us. It's his wisdom in us. 